Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, as we turn now to consider your word, we pray for the help of the Holy Spirit as we do so. Lord, we ask that you would speak to our need and to our hearts so that you are glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. It's amazing how God is at work, um, even in times when we don't realize it. Um, that particular song has been very much in my mind as I've prepared for today. And indeed, uh, I do want to refer to it later. So um, it's amazing how God is at work in different people to do the same thing at the same time. Well, in Ravenhill here, you've been following the series of parables, uh, so I believe. The one allocated to me is this particular um, reading in um, Luke 18, um, from verse 9 to verse 14. Um, I hope that I've got it right, and it's not uh, that you didn't do this last week or the week before. Um, one time I went down to a church um, down uh, in County Down, um, Hilltown, Clondoff actually it was, um, there's a joint charge there. And I preached on Psalm 1. It was an evening service, and a guy came up to me afterwards. He says, the man this morning preached in Psalm 1 as well. I'm glad he told me afterwards and not before. Otherwise, I'd been absolutely in a quandary. But um, So hopefully, um, this is the right one. Now, the parable here in Luke 18 continues the theme of prayer um, from the previous parable. Um, because that was the widow going to the judge and pleading with him and all the rest of it. But the, it also links into the remainder of the chapter and its theme about entry into the kingdom of God. Most of us, I think, are familiar with this parable. I th and we think that we know about it. We think we understand it. And indeed, most of us do grasp the meaning of it. We do understand the basic point of the parable. But in preparing... I was convicted because I realized that all those years ago when I came to faith in Jesus Christ, that um, in youthful pride and immaturity, that I and many others believed that we could pick out the people in our own congregation to whom this parable applied. People who quite obviously, as we saw it, were depending on their own righteousness. But we mere people we're making those judgments, and not always with grace in our hearts. We were quick to apply the word to other people. And indeed, we're always quick to apply the word to other people. Oh, so-and-so needs to hear that word without thinking that maybe we need to hear that word as well. And in those days, um, we were quick to apply the word to others and pat ourselves on the back for not being like those churchy people, for example who thought that activity in the church, who thought that paying into the church was enough, and they despised words like born again, saved, and sinner. But that too, you see, was a kind of self-righteousness, a looking down on others because of their situation and how they understood things. And very often the conclusion was right, but what was clearly wrong was the attitude of heart. We saw shortcomings in others, but we were blind to our own shortcomings. We were blind to the inverted pride in our own hearts for something that God in his grace had done, and we took the credit for it. And if it was put into prayer, it would be something like this. God, I thank you that I have recognized myself as a sinner and have repented unlike those self-righteous people 
who are still depending on themselves. So the point of all this, you see, is that this word must search my heart, it must challenge my thoughts, and it must challenge your thoughts. Don't think of yourself as this applies to others, but not to me. So I hope that each of us gathered here this morning and worshiping together, people listening to this perhaps later on will approach this with an open heart. Now, all of that said, we can't get around the fact that Luke clearly says that this parable is directed primarily to those who were confident in their own self-righteousness. That's what Jesus said at the beginning. That is the target audience for this parable, if you want. This story is a story of ordinary people going at a time in history up to the temple to pray, one a member of the religious establishment, the other, the lowest and the despised and the hated tax collector. Often corrupt, that's, they were despised, as you know, because they worked for the Romans. They were despised because when they collected taxes, they often took a bit off for themselves. They creamed a little bit more for themselves. So they worked for the occupying power, but they also lined their own nests. So these are the two extremes, if you want, in this parable. The very religious person and the one who was despised and rejected. These represent the extremes. They are stereotypes understood by the crowd. But between them, between these two extremes, lies a whole spectrum of humanity. Now, the first of these men is the Pharisee you see on the screen just there. A good man by all appearances, well-respected in his community, we would call him today a pillar of the church, faithful in prayer, generous in giving. He went above and beyond. But therein was the problem, not the prayer and the giving, not the way in which this shaped um, this man, but his thoughts about himself were all wrong. And you see, the problem identified here, though not in so many words, is pride, conceit, and a repugnant self-righteousness. And what we learn about the Pharisee comes round in verse 11 and 12. If you look at them there, if you've got your Bible in front, if you look at them, and in verse 11, it is translated slightly different ways depending on the Bible version that you're using. Now, at home, I tend to use an earlier version, the 1984 version of the NIV. It pulls no punches. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. It's as simple and as straightforward as that. Straightforward, yet it captures the sense of what this man is really about. He is praying to God about himself. The 2011 NIV that I read from has changed it to read more like the ESV. He stood by himself and he prayed, which hence perhaps had another attitude here, that he separated himself, that he stood at a distance, but also the hint that he was standing morally at a distance from those around him. And then there's the old revised version. That was just a, a revision in, in the 19th century of the authorized version. Um, it says the, the, par, the Pharisee prayed thus with himself. And it's similar to the New American Standard Version, um, both of which translations are very literal. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus about himself. Now, the differences in all of these are very slight. The nuances are very 
um, details. But together, you get the picture here. Here is a man with a big opinion about himself. He's got it cracked. He's got it right. He knows what he's about. He, he is the cream of the crop. Now, I can see him standing aside and yet standing in a prominent position so that he is noticed. And he swells his chest as he starts to pray. And he prays in a cultured voice. He is addressing God, but addressing him as an equal, not as one who is in need. And he's pretty certain that he can't be better. Now, what need has he really of God? That's the question. What he is, he has made himself. Now, as far as religion is concerned, he has gone above and beyond. He's gone the extra mile. He's, he's gone beyond even other Pharisees because he, pray, he, he fasts twice a week. And where some quibbled about what they should tithe, you know, well, I'll tithe that, but not this. This man tithed, every, tithed from everything that he got. So he has gone above and beyond, but his heart, well, in his heart there is no room for the Lord because he is full of himself. Now, it's a stereotype and it's easy to find fault in a person like this. Few in reality would be so blatant, so extreme. He's a caricature, in a sense, to make a point. But beware. Take notice. Do not write off this man the warning of the Pharisee. Bishop Ryle, um, in his notes on the gospel, writes, we are all naturally self-righteous. It is the family disease of all the children of Adam. To put it into modern terms, we would say that we're all on the spectrum, somewhere on the spectrum between the Pharisee and the tax collector. And even when we understand, even when we have embraced grace freely offered in Jesus Christ, not one of us wants to be compared to the tax collector. We don't want to be thought of as being as bad as him any more than being like the Pharisee at the other extreme. We want to have some dignity. We want to have some reason for pride in ourselves to feel that in some way we have deserved even a little of the mercy that God has shown to us in Jesus Christ. In short, we want in some way to be worthy of the mercy that we have received. And while we're content to sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Saviour, or I die. If that is how we once saw ourselves, if that is how we once felt, very often it is not how we feel now. Because, because we've sorted ourselves out. Because we've straightened out our lives. Because we're doing much better now, thank you. Or so we think. How easy it is for me or for you to start with grace and to be end up, to end up being filled with pride and self-righteousness. And those things are so easily rekindled and that we forget then that the best of us are simply sinners saved by grace. And that will always be true. That will always be the case. Nothing in my hands I bring. 
And grace is not a reward. And it's not a reward even for retrospective faithfulness. Now, when it comes to the bit, I'm always challenged by Jesus' words. And Luke records these words just in the previous chapter, chapter 17, verse 10. And it speaks to my heart. And strangely enough, it was Willie McCune that I first heard speak on these words um, in verse 10. And they, they are the pin. These words are the pin that bursts the bubble of my pride all the time. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, for we have only done our duty. Now, I referred to Bishop Ryle, the first bishop of Liverpool, um, just a few moments ago, but he also goes on to sound a second warning and I think that it's appropriate for us to think about that as well. And it should cause each of us to stop and to think. And he says this, never are men's hearts in such a hopeless condition as when they are not, they are not sensible to their own sins. Now, isn't that the reverse of what we would expect? We would think that People should be hopeless when they're aware of their sin, when they see the depth of their sin. Then they should be crushed by the weight of that sin and be hopeless. But it's not. It's when we realize that we are sinners that we are to be most hopeful. Because then, when we sense, when we see our sin, we recognize that Jesus is the one who has cleansed us from sin. Without him, there is an unbridgeable gulf between us and God. Something that works will not fill, something that prayer will not bridge. It is unbridgeable, but Christ alone has done it. And when we are down, when we can go no lower, when all hope of reaching God under our own steam has gone and we realize it, we know it, when we stand in the place of the tax collector, then there is hope. There is hope, the same hope that the tax collector had. And what is his hope? Well, you see, that's the second twist in the parable. And it would have come, this twist, as a great shock to the original hearers. It is his heart that is right. It is he, the tax collector, who goes away in right standing with God. Look at the man's dejection in verse 13. He stood at a distance, not because he, he didn't want to sully himself with unrighteous people, people who have lower morals, but because of shame, he stood at a distance. And perhaps that distance gave physical expression to his hopelessness. He is humbled. He would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his heart in repentance beat his breast as an expression of remorse. He is dependent. God have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a simple request, straightforward, easy. In a way, it reflects the thief on the cross. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's nothing at all to offer but accept this plea. Have mercy on me, a sinner. He brings absolutely nothing to the table. And yet there's a whole lot hidden in the English translation of the word mercy. 
we get the gist, we know that he's asking God for mercy. But there's a deeper sense to the verb in the original that is lost in translation. It's a rare word in the New Testament. This is one of only two places where it occurs and it means propitiated. In effect, he is saying, God propitiate me a sinner. Now we know that Christ is the propitiation of our sins. The Gospel Coalition article defines propitiation in this way. Propitiation is averting the wrath of God by the offering of a gift. It refers to the turning away of the wrath of God as the just judgment on our sin by God's own provision of a sacrifice in Jesus Christ on the cross. So he is asking God to propitiate him, to make a sacrifice that will cleanse him. And in the light of that, it would seem that this poor man knows beyond doubt that this self-improvement will not cut the mustard. On top of that, he has nowhere else to go. There is no one else to whom he can turn. He can't get around Psalm 49, verse 7. He is asking God himself to redeem him. And what does verse 47, or verse, Psalm 49, verse 7 say? No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough that he should live and never see decay. And here he is asking God for mercy. Now, whatever the depths, the hidden depths of Jesus' words, whatever, uh, and Luke records them here, we really are in a better position to understand the full implication of the tax man's request. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, we stand on this side of the cross. We know that such an idea of God himself making atonement is far from a fantasy. Far from a fantasy. And that's the hope that we have put so well by Paul in his letter to the Roman believers when he spoke of his own inability. Now, this is the apostle Paul we're talking about. When he spoke about his own inability to live well as he wanted. You know the words well. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Paul too expressed no confidence in his own goodness, but acknowledges Jesus as the only one who can deliver him. And the simple words that many of us have known for the best part of our lives apply this truth to us. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. This man is crushed by the weight of his sin, is standing before God. He realizes that he has no other hope and he throws himself on the very mercy of God. And perhaps because he is familiar in some way with the scriptures, Hope is stirred by the thoughts of Psalm 2, verse 12. His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him.
confronted with wrath, where can we flee to except to God himself? Where can we hide from the wrath of God except in God himself? When I was thinking about that, I thought of Elijah. Remember, Elijah wanted to see a glimpse of God's glory and God put him into a cleft in the rock, shielded him with his hand until his glory passed by. So when we are most conscious of sin, then in Christ we have most to hope for. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come. You see, the great irony of this parable, <clears throat> the thing that would have shocked most those who heard Jesus speak it and those who read Luke's account was that the man who was undeniably sinful, who was an outsider even in his own religion, who was despised and rejected, who had nothing at all, no goodness, no righteousness, no good works with which to bargain with God, throws himself at the mercy of God or on the mercy of God and pleads with God himself to redeem him. And by the wonder of grace, he receives mercy. He is justified And that justification is not grounded on himself, even on his throwing himself on the mercy of God. It is grounded in Jesus Christ, the propitiation for our sins. And friends, that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the good news that we've got to share with people. We may not always put it in those terms, but this is the good news that while there is no way that I or you can be acceptable to God because we are sinful in heart, that we are in Christ. And in Christ, we are acceptable. In him, we have received mercy. In him, we have the promise of eternal life. This is the hope. This is the gospel. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you that you do love us and that that love is shown, demonstrated in Jesus, your son. Father, help us to grasp the depth of your grace, to understand it. Help us, we pray, to that when we understand it, and perhaps, Lord, even when we're crushed by the weight of our own sin, to remember grace. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Lord, help us to remember that. And then work in us, we pray, so that this good news can be shared with others. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.